Hey guys, welcome back to the All In Podcast. Uh, we're here in Franklin, Tennessee, and I've got a very special guest today, Mr. Brian Boyd, who is a lawyer here in Nashville. Uh, he helps clients with real estate, construction, and business matters related to dispute resolutions. And he's also a, a really big investor. We're going to talk about that as well. He invests in um, in residential properties. He and his wife, Dawn, have grown their portfolio to a six-figure income. Uh, he earned his bachelor's administration from the University of Chattanooga, the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, UT Chattanooga, his Juris Doctorate from Sanford University's Cum- Cumberland School of Law, and an LMM in taxation from Georgetown University Law Center. They live in Franklin, like I said, uh, with their uh, son, Connor, and their three dogs, Bourbon, Bailey, and Bella. And when he's not practicing law with Dawn, uh, on their real estate ventures, uh, they can be found uh, in the Brazilian, he can be found on the Brazilian Jitsu mats in his local gym. And I think that's pretty much kind of how we have the connection there. Yeah. Um, so, man, welcome, Brian. Thanks Thank for you very coming. much Thanks for having for me. I appreciate coming. your time today. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how you got started uh, in kind of your journey. And you can kind of start wherever you want, whether it's on the law side or the real estate side. Because, I mean, you clearly, you're in the real estate um, purchasing, you know, um, investing but then you also help people set up things that they need so they're in the right place they've got the right setups so when they're investing because it's not just like go buy a property and, and no, no, set no, please, it for please you. just don't go buy a property <laughs> um so it started for me and my wife in about 2015 i was looking at my retirement account and seeing it just wasn't growing and i and i was i was dumping cash into my retirement account um i represent a lot of general contractors in the area and i have one in particular and and I won't mention his name because he's a very private person, but he had this theory. He would build 10 townhomes, sell seven, keep three, do a cash out refi of those. So he's made all of his money back when he sold the properties. He kept the three. He did a cash out refi of about 80%. So he's pulled all the money back out and he just kept rolling it. Mm. It got to the point where he was making $250,000 a month. Mm. And this was back in 2013. So I can only imagine how big he is now. Right. But I started looking at it from a tax perspective. I'm like, well, if you move this and you do this and do a cost seg study, you've wiped out any liability whatsoever. And by taking the cash out refi, it's not taxable as you right. know, because it's a loan. And if you can service that debt, and he just keeps growing. I think he's got a portfolio now of over $100 million here in the Nashville area. And that's just what he has in the Nashville area. Um, I know he's got some up in Kentucky, some up in Indiana, some up in Ohio. But it, he's he's my age. He's probably well on his way to being a billionaire. I know his father's a billionaire. And his, he kept going. So I, I started looking at that. And I thought, well, if he can do all that, what can I do with my little retirement account? And so, you know, there's a 10 and 10 penalty if you cash out your retirement account. Mm-hmm. And I looked at him like, you know, I need to figure out a way to make money while I sleep. Okay. So I've got a really good friend and we we're out turkey hunting one day and he was telling me about his coin laundries and started asking about the depreciation schedules on the equipment in there. Like, ah, oh, this will be good. I can cash flow it. It will offset some income. So I I set up a coin laundry, and I did that in 2016. I sold it in 2017 to somebody who just inherited a trust fund. I made a 15% profit on it, and I did four things with that money. I paid off a student loan, bought my wife a new wedding ring, 
bought a couple of shotguns, and I bought my first short-term rental. And from that point forward, my wife was all in on the real estate. So we bought two more properties in Mount Juliet. A year later, we sold that short-term rental for a $70,000 profit. And we bought 13 single family homes in Chattanooga and we've just kept going ever since. Nice. Yeah. And so we were joking at the beginning, you know, what do people need to do though? There are things people need to do when, before they, either before they start investing in their first property or after they do, and you can talk about the timing of that, but there's some things they need to do to protect themselves from a legal standpoint. What do they need to do? From a legal standpoint, I would encourage anybody to consider, at least consider an LLC. Yeah. Now I have layered all of my LLCs to provide us as much protection as possible because this is my retirement. This is how I'm going to exit the nine to five. Um, Speak to an attorney, find out the differences between a single member LLC, a multi-member LLC. What are the tax advantages of each? Um, And quite frankly, never have anything in your personal name. Ever. The liability there is unlimited. You don't want unlimited liability, at least with an LLC. And if you do the LLC correctly, you are insulated from the liabilities other than whatever assets are in the business. So I, it's a brilliant use of a limited liability company. Don't use S corporations. Stay away from C corps. Uh, trusts are kind of difficult because if it's an irrevocable trust, you can't really control it. So that's a problem and you don't really get the benefits of it. Yeah. So along those lines, if someone owns multiple rental properties, Mm -hmm. should they set up an LLC for each one? No. I know a lot of people out there will disagree with this, but I don't like it. The administrative cost basically strips out the profit. Mm. So you've got bookkeepers doing something for every single LLC. Every single LLC will have to have its own bank account, Mm -hmm. own tax ID, so it's filing its own annual reports. It just becomes an administrative nightmare. Set up one LLC and you can keep your properties in there. And the way I would advise people to do it is set up a holding company that is your operating company. That operating company will then own the LLCs below it. And the way we have set up ours is that we have uh, divided the state of Tennessee into three parts, East, Middle, and West. And we have an LLC for West Tennessee, an LLC for Middle Tennessee, and an LLC for East Tennessee. And that's how we've done it. And then we, anything outside of the state, we have a separate LLC for that. So how many doors, um, how many doors do you guys have now? We're currently at 22 doors. We're down from 33 doors. Okay. And the reason for that is we had a, a good footprint in Knoxville and we sold at the top of the market. We had purchased, I think we're all in on these properties for 400000 We sold after a year and a half for 785000 mm-hmm. We took that. We bought the Montana property, so we consolidated down. We bought up, and that's a short-term rental where these were long-term rentals. So we're looking to generate more cash fast right. to allow us to continue to deploy that money into the market and buy more doors. 
Right. So when you you sold all those properties, sold the thirteen, was it? I did. Yeah. I, I sold. Yeah. Well, those were that's were those were six doors right there. You sold six, and I'm assuming you did a ten thirty one exchange for I the didn't. Montana. You did not. I didn't. Okay. And here's Let's the reason I that. didn't do it. Um, even though there's the depreciation recapture and the um, the capital gains due, we bought up. So our basis in those properties that we sold was $415,000. And when we sold for seven eighty five, dollars we went and bought a property worth $850,000. Mm-hmm. So we bought up and then we did a cost segregation study on that. And it wiped everything out to make us net negative or net neutral for that year. Right, right. So talk about a cost segregation study. Sure. A cost segregation study is when you take the, the bricks and sticks of the property and instead of depreciating the asset over 27 and a half years, what you're doing is you're breaking the house into its individual parts, the appliances, the air conditioner, the lighter, uh, the lighting, the wires, the, the flooring, mm-hmm. they all have useful lives under the maker's rules under mm-hmm. section 179 of the tax code. And if you depreciate each of those assets individually, what happens is between five and seven years, you take the bulk of the depreciation from the property and it allows you to theoretically speaking, accelerate Accelerate. depreciation, right? You're not really accelerating depreciation. You're just taking the depreciation of the five, seven and 15 year property up front instead of 27 and a half years. And it's a paper loss. It's a paper loss. Yeah. Yeah. And so do you agree that the average American that's either doesn't own investment property, even a lot that do, don't really understand cost segregation or don't know what it's about? It I seems think, that way to me. I think you're right. And I, I would go farther and I would say it's probably the best kept secret that right. is publicly available to everybody. Right. Right. I mean, this is literally what you had Trump and Hillary arguing about on stage. Uh, this is not a political statement, but I mean, this is what they were arguing about on stage. They were saying, you know, because they both constituents use it. Yep. He's just admitting, say, hey, I, I do use this. Uh, it's the rules. I'm just playing within the rules. And so, but it's interesting that when you get into politics, you you sort of start sort of it's almost like, hey, let's not talk about something that the people don't know about. Let's instead make it something that's like, hey, it's bad. But the reality is this is a, this is something that's available. And the, really, this, maybe talk about the spirit of it, because the spirit of really accelerated depreciation, at least in my view, is these, this idea of helping new business owners. And if you're a, if you're a short term rental owner, you're a business owner. But it's to help those people in the early years not get hammered with taxes. Right. That's correct. And I I think if we said it this way, is that the policy behind the cost segregation study is to allow developers, uh, real estate investors to take losses early and save those tax dollars that would otherwise go to the IRS and use those tax dollars to reinvest and create Mm -hmm. more housing. Right, and right. that's the tax policy behind it. That's a great policy because the government can't build all this housing. Right, it's a business move for them. I mean, because they're saying, okay, we'll give you a deduction um, because we know you're going to reinvest, which is going to create more jobs, which is going to create more tax revenue. So they're giving away a little to get a lot. Right, that is correct. And I don't want to miss identify what we're talking about. We're only talking about 
depreciation. We're not saying that the real estate investors aren't paying property taxes. No, no, of course. We aren't saying that they're not paying other taxes, such as employment taxes. This is simply the depreciation of an asset they've already purchased. Mm -hmm. So it, it behooves everybody to encourage this type of tax policy to build and build and build currently. And you know this as well as I do. We're about two and a half to three and a half million houses short in this country mm -hmm. right now as oh, we at sit least. here. Yeah. At least that yeah. number. Yeah. So this encourages developers and real estate investors to go out and, and keep investing, keep building. Sure, sure. And it seems to me that, you know, the more that you have people investing, the more builders, developers are, are building, um, the more jobs it's, 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 it's creating. It's more, it's boosting the economy. We all know that the real estate is what is really the driver of the American economy. It's how the, it's housing. Absolutely. It's absolutely housing. Housing I, suffers. We're all suffering. Yeah, some, it, everyone feels it in some form or another. Absolutely. And you know as well as I do, because we live in the same community, that there is building going on left and right. And the number of jobs that is created for people, not only the, the contractors and the builders that are building now, but uh, everybody that comes after those people. Yeah. You know, the the landscapers, the, the pool installers, and, you know, we're kind of unique in the Franklin area, but it has generated this microcosm of an industry and an economy just around the building of a single house. Yeah. So what do you say? You've got somebody out there, a listener, and they're saying, hey, um, man, I really want to invest in a property, but gosh, these rates are insane and, you know, too high. I can't, I can't make the numbers work. Um, you know, I know what I think about that, but what do you say to that? So if people are concerned about the interest rates, look, if you look and you've been in this business for a long time, you know, these interest rates are nothing near what they were in the eighties mm -hmm. and people were building. I wasn't doing this in the eighties, by the way, but <laughs> yes. Right. But I, even in, uh, I want to say in like 07, they went up to seven and 7%, something like that. Yeah. So. And if you remember the nineties, I mean, they were, you know, six, seven, eight, yeah, 9% for sure. even then. Yeah. And it didn't, stop people from buying properties. As long as you can make your numbers work, look, get in now. Your your margin by, might be slim this first year, but refi. Right. Refi out when the, the rates drop. That's what we do. Yeah. And I think that the important thing to remember, guys, is that, you know, like Brian said, the when you're talking about the margins, sometimes cash flow is it's it's really only one component of it. I mean, so if you can cash flow even a couple hundred dollars, you definitely need reserves. So because things do go wrong with a property, you do need a property manager if you're not going to manage it yourself. Um, and so I think what what people get stuck on is um, they're afraid they're going to buy a rental property and they're going to be stuck because. They can't. I mean, you have Dave Ramsey out there saying um, that if you can't pay for your rental properties all on your own, um, the payments that you shouldn't be buying rental property. Which I'm sorry, but like people use leverage. It's not realistic. And, and it's and uh, it ninety and also not only do they use leverage, but that the vacancy rates are very small. So I mean, it's not like you're going to have vacancy. Now, you're talking to a, a person who though who I have a great deal of respect for. However, he's speaking from a place of pain that. He 
he experienced some 30 years ago when he got burned. And it's almost like everything is through that filter. I mean, but it's back to the point that it's like people are concerned that I'm going to buy property, but you're leaving out. It's not about the $200 of cash flow. We get it. That's not a lot of cash flow. That's not really the reason why you're buying it, but you're getting it for about three other things. The, you know, the, the pay down from the, from the loan from the, that the tenant's doing the taxes that you get. And I'm leaving one out. Uh, oh, you're, you're missing appreciation. appreciation, appreciation of the home itself. So the house is going up in value. The tenant's paying it down. You get those huge tax breaks and the tax breaks can actually filter over and help you with other aspects of your life and offset other income. Absolutely. And I I can't stress enough that appreciation needs to be considered into every purchase, at least three to five percent a year. I think this year in Tennessee, we're seeing about an 11 percent appreciation around the the area. Moreover, statewide, we're seeing 16 percent. Last year, we saw 22 percent. So these are incredible numbers. And as that number goes up, that's equity you can tap into to leverage to buy the other property. So I try to explain it to people like this. If I have one hundred thousand dollars in my hand Am I going to go buy one property for $100,000 in the hopes that I'll make $1,000 a month off that property, even though it's free and clear? No, I'm going to take that $100,000 and I'm going to buy four properties. I'm going to put $25,000 down on each property. And after you do all the numbers, I'm going to make more than $1,000 a month with the same hundred thousand dollars down yeah and i think the other big thing is i think people realize don't think about is let's say you do buy a property and um gosh we just have a 10 percent dip or something and that you know the thing is you don't lose until you sell the property so just because the property value goes down um nothing really happens unless you unless you sell unless you sell it and so historically if you look at a chart from left to right, the real estate uh, graph, the, the appreciation has always gone up over time. So does everything go up in a straight line? Nothing does in any asset class, right? I mean, yeah. but you're going to have some small dips, but I think sometimes people are just so scared to get into the market of real estate investing. And we're, I mean, and again, we're not talking about people that are out there that are Pace Morby followers and, um, you know, Justin Colby students, but more talking about people who are just only been doing 401ks like you and I used to do only been doing IRAs like you and I used to do. And then all of a sudden you said, there's a better way. And I, you start to see someone else and all of a sudden now they're financially independent or this person is really on their way to financial independence. I can do that. And so then you start making these moves, but you got to have the right setup. You got to have people that are in your corner like you to actually help set up with the proper formations of these entities to help protect you from liability so that someone slips and uh, falls they're not suing you and taking your primary residence. Absolutely. And that liability shield is incredibly important, especially when you have built something. You don't want to wipe it all out with one lawsuit. It's not enough to have just an umbrella policy. No, it's not. So for us and the way I have structured ours is we have multiple LLCs. Each LLC has its own uh, general liability policy. It's got a business policy. Mm-hmm. Then we have a commercial umbrella policy. Each house is insured. Mm-hmm. So each house has um, homeowner's insurance. So we have layer after layer after layer of insurance coverage, but we're also running the business correctly so that if there ever is a lawsuit, nobody's piercing our corporate veil. Nobody's getting through to our personal assets. Yeah. So what's the best first way do you think for somebody to get started with the first property? I think in order to get started with your first property, you need to educate yourself. 
That's the most important thing. You need to listen to podcasts, read books, go to meetups, talk to people. It's a big one, meetups. Absolutely. You have to be around people that are like-minded. The next step, I would just start browsing realtor.com, browse the MLS, browse Zillow, just get an idea of what you're interested in. Understand the difference between short-term, long-term, commercial, uh, storage units, mobile home parks. Understand what they all do. Yeah. What's the difference? Make friends with a wholesaler. That's where you're going to find these people. Absolutely. Try to figure out what your goals are. And your goals will change, and that's fine. And you can change with your goals. But aim small, miss small. Don't go out and buy a five-bedroom, six-and-a-half bath and expect it to Airbnb and generate $200,000 a year. It's not going to happen. Right. Go buy a three-bedroom, two-and-a-half bath, in a bedroom community yeah. that has a low HOA fee and rent that out and cash flow it for your first year. And then, then look for your second. Right. So you talked about how to find them. Um, so how do you find, what's the, what's the easiest way to calculate the potential return? How, how should people do that? So I use ROI. A lot of people use cap rates, um, but there's so much return on investment. Yeah. Return on investments, you know, Cap rates, CapEx, there's so much that goes into it. And we could sit here all day and talk about all these different formulas, but I quickly look at how much am I paying for the property? What can I get in rent? What's my taxes, my maintenance, my insurance, and what's my vacancy rate for the first yeah. year? A lot of people don't take that into account. You have about a 10% vacancy rate. So I add all that up. There's a great app that I keep on my phone. It's called, I think, DealCheckIO. And I just put all the numbers in there and it runs me a report. And I'm like, well, there it is. Can't buy that one. Right. And in fact, this same app my wife and I used on the last offer we put in on a, a cabin in Gatlinburg. And I was like, honey, we can't buy this house. It doesn't, it doesn't cash flow. Right. It it looks great. It looks like we'll make $86,000 on it. But after we pay property management, taxes, utilities, maintenance, we're going to be negative. Right. We can't buy this house. Right. And it's an easy, it's a free app. And I use apps all the time for things. And at the end of the day, one of the best ways is to really find somebody that's doing it already and find out what they're using you know, like this app that you're talking about or some sort of spreadsheet or worksheet that they're using uh, to plug in the numbers. Does it work? Does it not? It really just boils down to really simple things of just plugging in the data, right? If you if you have a person that's, if you're going to real estate meetups, or you know somebody that's a wholesaler or, or an active investor that's been successful, you're going to be able to um, use what they're using to plug in the data, see if it works and just move on it. You Absolutely. Know, take imperfect action, you know? Absolutely. And I also would tell people that, look, you don't have to buy in your backyard. Sometimes the best deals are an hour or two hours away. And that's fine. That's completely doable. If you have one property two hours away, but it, you've got your hands on it and you know you can run it, great. Yeah. And you can also have a management company, right? Well, how Absolutely. do you feel about that? I mean... So I think management companies, if run properly, are incredibly life-saving for you. Mm -hmm. um, we took over all of our properties about a year ago. So we, we run everything. Self-manage. Um, Self-manage. Uh, our 
short-term rentals are obviously managed by a property management company in Gatlinburg and then in Montana. They run those, but our single family homes or multifamily homes, we self-manage those. And it's not difficult with the technology available to everybody right now. It's not hard. Yeah, it really isn't. You just get teams in place. And if something comes in, send your team out. Talk about funding. What do you think is the best way to fund real estate? I personally like using bank money. Um, only so traditional financing. I like traditional financing. I am doing a deal now that's all cash. And then once it's built, leased out, we'll do we'll do a cash out refi. But I do like traditional bank financing. But there are other ways to do it. There's hard money. There's soft money. There's partnering. Uh, there's crowdfunding. There's, there's a lot of different ways. And I think anybody that's going to get into real estate investing, you need to have a mortgage broker or a banker or some financial person on your team. I've got four bankers, four. So you have to have them. They're critical to success, critical. And most of the time they know as much or if not more than you do about the products available to you because the products are different. Right. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. There are different financing products available to people. And you're not married to the loan forever. Nope. I mean, I think that's what a lot of people uh, maybe don't understand is that, you know, currently we're in an environment where rates are elevated. I mean, more than what they were used to, although we don't think rates are going to go back down to those levels that were really a false level. Um, and that's created all kinds of other sorts of issues. But um, we do know that as inflation comes down, mortgage rates are going to follow. And so when that comes down, there's going to be opportunities for people to refinance. Um, there's still deals being made every single day. I mean, whether you're in the commercial side, where you're in the residential side, um, you just maybe have to dig a little bit harder right now. It's not order taking anymore. Um, and you got to dig a little bit harder and, and find the deal. But, you know, after owning investment property, what do people need to do to set themselves up from a legal standpoint moving forward? Uh, go meet with an, an attorney. Tell them what your goals are. Let them explain all the options available to you for that protection. You definitely want to meet with an insurance agent. You want to learn about insurance products that can protect you personally and your investments. You also want to make sure you're setting up the LLC correctly. A lot of people go on to LegalZoom.com and they, they do it themselves. And that's great. I make a lot of money because people screw that up all the time. But that's not the goal. The goal is to help you make your own money. So let's do it right the first time. Don't be a penny wise and pound foolish. Yeah. Do it right. Pay for professionals. Pay a CPA. Pay a bookkeeper. Pay a lawyer. Get it done right. It's investing in yourself. And so when these, how can people, um, what is the best way for people to work with you? Like what is an ideal client that you're looking for? People are out there. They need, they're looking to buy rental property. Uh, they're either on the cusp of buying or they've pulled the trigger and they've already purchased. What do they come to you for? Typically, they come to me to understand how real estate investing works. And it, it's a very simple process that I'll sit with them for a couple of hours and I'll whiteboard it out for them. And I'm like, here's what you're looking to do. Here's how we're going to get there. This is what you need to do. Mm -hmm. Here's how you put your team together. This is how you run numbers. 
and it's like a two hour education for them. Right. So people want to reach out to you. And also, by the way, before we get to that, but people, they've already purchased, mm-hmm. they, um, you do some dispute resolution. So people have gotten in, um, there's, um, some non-disclosure issues that's going on. So, um, you get, you step in to protect them. Use litigation. Sure. You know, I have a law firm and this is, these are the areas we practice in every day. You know, it's a lot of real estate litigation, a lot of construction defect litigation. And we try to resolve it. We try to transact our way out of it before it has to get to that point where we're filing a lawsuit. Um, Because at that point, it's just going to get expensive. It'll be protracted. If we can resolve it quickly and amicably, uh, we try to do that. But that's what our firm does on a daily basis. And we're happy to help. Just call the firm. We're happy to talk to you about it. Great. So how would uh, people reach out to you, Brian? How do people um, work for you or work the, with you, rather? Yeah, the law firm is uh, Boyd and Wills PLLC. And we're up in Brentwood. Um, if they want to reach out about this type of stuff, like real estate investing, it's BrianTBoyd.com. Um, you can reach out through Instagram or TikTok or anything like that. We're pretty responsive about that. Great. Awesome. Uh, Brian, thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in one more time. Uh, We appreciate you. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time here on the All in One Podcast. Thank you.